Greetings, everybody, and welcome to the show. This time on the podcast, I have soundman extraordinaire John L. Butler. There's no way to introduce this guy and actually do his career or personality justice, so I'm just going to let it go. Enjoy. Do you have a large following? Or no. People, no. Nobody <laughs> ever calls you to complain about what you've done? Nope. No, gee, okay. It's enti- I, have, I have 25 subscribers at this point. How many? 25. They must, okay, it must be hard up then, huh? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I'm hoping that if I, if I get guests um, such as yourself to come and talk about their experiences, um, I think the listeners would actually really enjoy um, hearing what you have to say. Okay. So, so how did you get started in sound? Let's go back even further. Where are you from? little small town in North Carolina, Reedsville, the home of the Lucky Strike cigarette. Oh, really? And uh, my grandparents and family are all from that area. They were farmers, which provided the tobacco for the cigarettes were made there. And difficult, I don't know. When you ask me about how did I get started in sound, I think that I've always wanted to be an engineer. And my grandparents on my mother's side, is, which was in North Carolina, and recently I've done some research and looking at relatives and grandparents on my father's side, and I discovered that uh, my grandfather... John H. Mannon Butler was also an engineer and a school teacher who spent some time in the Philippine Islands and uh, doing research, finding out about him and all my other grandparents and other relatives and friends. In fact, I discovered, hey, that someone told me, gee, your engineering background could be a lot of influence of why you're doing the things that you are doing now in sound. And possibly that could be it. What kind of engineer did you want to be? At that particular time, I couldn't tell you because at a young age like that, an engineer meant a person who would probably structural engineer civil engineer, electrical engineer. Engineers weren't so divided up into special categories as they are as of today. And there are some places that things that, particularly in, particularly in radio, they have engineers, which are broadcast engineers. And I used to take a step of things of being upset when people would call them engineers because they were not totally engineers, but for radio they were for engineers, but out in the outside world they were not classified as an engineer such as an electrical engineer or a construction engineer or a civil engineer or what have you as engineers developed. And I think of uh, watching and seeing 
things that engineers did. Gee, I want to be one. Did you build a lot of stuff when you were a kid? Oh, I... Like, did you do models or did you uh, take apart the telephone? <laughs> the first story I had about being an engineer or doing things, I've always had an inquisitive mind. And I wanted to see how things worked. And I was given a watch by my grandfather. And after I had it, this was for a birthday, and after I had it for a few hours, I decided I wanted to see how it works on the inside. And I decided to take it apart. And Grandpa says, John, I only know two types of people who will take a watch apart. And I says, really, Grandpa? He said, yeah. And I says, who, who are they? He says, oh, a watchmaker and a fool. <laughs> well, I says, oh, gee. I was going to change his opinion of uh, watch people who would take watches apart. So I took mine apart, set all of the parts and seen them, and I started to reassemble them. I put it back together, and uh, it didn't work. And that's when I found out what the other person was, what I was. Grandpa says, I told you. Mm-hmm. There's only two people that would take a watch apart. You're not a watchmaker, so you must be the other one. So did that, that put you off watchmaking, I guess? It put me off for a time of uh, taking things apart, but that didn't stop. So I thought I would deal with larger things of taking them apart, where you could put parts back together and you could see what you've taken apart. Did you work on cars or anything like that? Like no. engines? Only electrical things, such as radios, power supplies, amplifiers, microphones, any of that stuff that fascinated me, how it functioned and how it worked. So when you started taking those things apart, I mean, microphones and radios were things that you could build by yourself at home without too many parts, right? I mean, think, it, it seems like things have gotten so complicated with digital electronics. Well, this is prior to digital electronics. Well, that's a long time before digital electronics. Right, that's what I'm saying. So w- what time was this when you were taking this apart radios? Taking apart parts. In fact, television was something that they were talking about. This was sometime near World War II. During that time, it, I was taking things apart and I wanted to build and I tried building a power supply for an amplifier and I was successful in getting it together and the moment I plugged in the radio to go to the power supply it blew up (laughs) so that let me know that I've done something wrong so I had to do another type of research of becoming a an engineer or a broadcast engineer who worked in radio. That's what fascinated me about radio then, is the fact how they had microphones and they could transmit your sound over the air and you could pick it up with the radio. And I think the first thing I built was a radio station, a small radio station, myself and one of my friends. And one of my friends, his name was Al. 
and we decided to build the radio because he was really into this and we wanted to do something like the ham radios but gee when we got the thing built and we could talk and we could pick it up on the radios in the house or at his place or what have you we decided we'd have a radio station we would start to broadcast did you build a tower in your backyard no we didn't we just strung a long wire from one tree to another. We didn't build a tower. We were, that was something in the future because we didn't have the money to do it. Okay. And nobody was around to show us how to build it or what have you for an antenna. And uh, what happened is the fact that the FCC found us because we were interfering with one of the radio stations on their frequency and it's amazing that they found us and they come to see us and when they saw what we were doing with this little five or ten watt transmitter that we were putting out that people were complaining about they were picking it up and or for a frequency that one of the uh, popular station was in that area and the guys were amazed to see how we were cooling the tubes and everything. And he says, you guys are headed for danger. You could have electrocuted yourself because uh, what we did in order to keep the tubes cool, we put them in a tub of water. We turned the amplifier upside down and put the tubes in the water to to cool it. And he says, boy, if that thing had fell into that, he could have been electrocuted or anything could have happened to us, but that stopped me from wanting to do radio broadcasts when they told us that, gee, that they'd be watching us and if we had to come out again, we would probably be in serious trouble. And they told parents and grandparents that we should not build any more things electrically like that, particularly a radio. So that stopped me from going down the path of being a radio engineer. So what did you do next? Next is the fact, I guess then, going to school, becoming a nice good citizen, (laughs) and not uh, breaking any laws uh, with the FCC or anyone. Mm -hmm. And I just decided to uh, just leave just leave the radio part al- al- alone and started into uh, going to school. And uh, after finishing high school, I went into engineering to Milwaukee School of Engineering. I didn't get the uh, fine arts like you guys get when you go to a four-year college. This was especially for engineering, just on hands-on equipment. So was it a, a trade school? Kind of? It was something like a trade school that issued a degree. And uh, that's where I picked up the engineering part with. And I worked for a company in uh, West Coast, which we had developed a, a quarter-inch recorder, the Ampex recorder. And they had did um, a few things of installations of quarter-inch equipment is how I got into sound 
is I was a field service person for them, and they had completed uh, an installation. Well, prior to this, oh, it's a crazy kind of to tell you, this is I had grown up, I'd gotten married, I had kids and stuff, and we were in California and working for Ampex, and they had done this installation for the Goldwyn Studios. And, like uh, MGM? And like Sam Goldwyn. It's Goldwyn Studios, not MGM. Is it before MGM? Oh, no. this was MGM was still existing, but Sam Goldwyn had his own studio. Okay. And his own operation. And uh, I thought I had knew everything it was about sound. We're going to check the system out after it had been installed. And there's a guy there from Pittsburgh, which is my wife's hometown. I had relatives and friends in Pittsburgh, and uh, this guy came in and asked me, he says, how would you like to come to Pittsburgh and install or check out that system at Modart? I says, you have to ask my boss. He says, I've already asked your boss. He told me to ask you if you wanted to go, and my wife wanted to go. She says, yes. So we came to Pittsburgh, and I thought that Modart happened to be the largest industrial filmmaker in the world at that particular time. They did all the training films and the things on how steel is made, what you would see in high school, okay, and things like that. And they had customers like U.S. Steel, Bethlehem Steel, Des Moines Steel, all these technical things that they did. And... I discovered that Jim Baker, who owned Modart at that time, copied everything that Sam Goldwyn had in his studio. And he did the same thing in Pittsburgh. And if you left Goldwyn Studios or Goldwyn's office and went to Pittsburgh, you could not tell you whether you were in Goldwyn's office or Baker's office. They both were identically the same with he, equipment. He really? Wow. And. Uh, they had recently had a fire in their studio, and they had uh, a new console and everything placed in, and equipment, and it was all magnetic recorders, uh, magnetic film stuff. And after, it was the first coming of a quarter-inch analog uh, recorders, and uh, they wanted this installation which we had done with Ampex machines that have uh, they would caught a sync track on it the same as the sprocket holes on 35 and I was asked to check it out and to see how it worked and it worked fine and someone asked me says would you take a look at this console it doesn't work properly and I says gee you know I take a look at it did I discovered that uh, some of the equipment was wired backwards. And I was able to correct it. And Baker asked me after that was completed, he says, how would you like to work for Modart per permanent? No problem. You asked your wife first, though, right? I asked her, and she was having... Because she were in Pittsburgh, and she were, Baker had taken us to dinner... 
and he had offered a salary and what have you, and she was kicking me under the table to let me know to take it and to stay. She was happy and pleased with it, and that did it. And after working at Bodart for maybe three or four months and talking to the RCA people who, because all the recording equipment was licensed by RCA, and talking to their engineer who came in once uh, every so often to check to see how the facility was and that we were functioning according to RCA's license and to check the equipment and also his duty to sell the company on the newest recording equipment. And he laughed and he told me about the story about the console that we had uh, installed. And he says, the guys and the field service people were kind of upset because they were in South America and uh, I think it was Argentina, and he says, these guys had made a deal with the people in the shipping department of the consoles to make sure that they sent the one down there with everything wired backwards so they could spend an extra time in South America. And uh, also was a console going to Modar at the same time, which was identical. <laughs> So I wasn't the smart person that I thought I oh, was. Oh, so they, they were just trying to keep their uh, field operatives busy, huh? I guess so. <laughs> what happened is that the shipping department didn't know. They saw the two consoles on there, and they didn't know which one should go where, so they just shipped the one that was supposed to go to South America, went to Modart, and the one that went to Modart went to South America, and they had no problems at all, and this is what it was, so... I guess being at the right place at the wrong time or at the wrong place at the right time is how I got into doing sound. So when they gave you a salary, what was your daily job? Were you there to install things? Were you there to make sure that the equipment was running properly? Make sure the equipment run properly. Also, sound had to be recorded for the movies that they made. And also they did commercials and uh, quite a few other little things that movies were made there. And I think they were on the staff for roughly about five different producers who brought stuff in that had to be recorded and had to be transferred. It had to be mixed or what have you. And to do all of that myself and two other people, in fact, I was at Modar before almost a year before I never did any recording. And uh, I would had to go out with the crews when they went out, everything I had working in the um, lighting department, being a gaffer and a grip and everything with the lighting department. And after doing this, because when I first went out with them, they had just did, finished doing a show in the coal mines and all the cables and the lights and everything had to be washed because they were going to do a hospital scene on safety for one of the steel mills. And so everything had to be clean going into the hospital. So I was busy washing cables and things like this and 
put him up life, lights, and when the crew went out, there was another sound engineer there, and he was doing all the sound recording, and I thought maybe I would be working with him, but I was working with the lighting department. I was out moving lights and putting up lights and doing all this stuff, and I went in to talk to Baker. I says, you hired me to do sound, I thought, and here I am running around with the lighting department. And uh, he laughed and he smiled. And he says, you can continue to do that or you can go home. And he says, but first, before you make a decision, I just want to point out something to you. And he pointed out to me, he says, you see that producer right across the hall there who was the vice president of the company? I said, yes. I says, he said, he started doing the same thing that you do. He says, everybody that works here at Modart starts in the same department. And he says, you have to know everything about how to make a film. And he says, this is a place to start in the lighting department. After being in the lighting department for roughly about six months, they moved me to the camera department. I became loading magazines for all types of cameras and going out and doing what the DP wanted to be done. And just when I could probably place a camera and know how to focus and to use a dolly that had a uh, head on it you could twirl and what have you like this, I could wanted to be a camera person. I didn't want to be any more lights. I didn't want to do any sound. So I did that and I was saying, how are the chances of my being a DP, I said to Baker. And at that particular time, the DP was Sam Sapo. And Sam Sapo says, oh, you can easily be a DP whenever you can do this. The, the head that was on the dolly, you could move by different cranks and turning. So, oh, there's a little, oh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, okay. you probably have seen them. And he took a magic marker and put it on that camera head and wrote the word Mississippi and then went back and dotted the eyes. He says, when you can do that with the camera, you can be a DP. Oh, are you, wait, oh, so he, are you serious? <laughs> yeah. So he used the dolly and it was like a crane too? A crane, he, a crane. And just, and just so he used the just, handles to yeah, write Mississippi. To write like, Mississippi. So did you try to do it? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm crazy, not stupid. Okay. I, I, and so, fair. gee, just when I thought that, I says, gee, I know how to light, know how to work with the camera. And the next thing I know, they moved me to the editing department. Oh my God, something that I hate, I had to go to the editing suite. Why? In fact, I didn't know at that time how bad and how it was, but the editor, the guy who ran the editing department, everything was had to be immacul immaculately clean. Even when you went into the editing suite, you went through a door that removed any dust and stuff from your electronic. You had to put on a cap, gloves, booties on your shoes so you couldn't take dust into the editing room. Is that so, so just in case you got dust on the film? Is that the right? Because they were, you'd be working with negative, negative film. And even when they were going to do a final cut for a, a film for a negative, they would. Uh, 
wash the walls down, clean off everything in the office, and you couldn't go out. You couldn't go. You got to go in the room. If you went out, you had to change all of your clothing and everything when you come back in. And there was this time that uh, that time I smoked, and quite a few people smoked, and the editor used to bitch and complain about us smoking. He said, you stink and you do all kind of crazy things and you bring stuff in here and mess up my editing room. And was in a room that had no windows or anything like that. And so I says, man, I never want to be an editor. If you got to be this kind of thing. Plus, they had the upright movieolas. And when they were using those, they all had to be clean, washed down and everything so it'd be no dust or dirt to scratch things. The work prints looked like negative, looked like a release print. That so you, you didn't see. get reversal to work with or anything like that? No. Huh. It was just, just, just unusual. Totally what you have now is a comparison to that day. You would have probably, right now, you'd probably have walked out of filmmaking. Because Maybe. everything was separately, <laughs> editing in the down it was really a mess. And uh, I was so happy when I got transferred out of that to do to go to the sound department to work. And I used to always tell the editor because he was so immaculately clean. I says, one of these days I'm going to catch you when you're taking your nap. And we're gonna take a cigarette ash and put it right under your nose. And he uses his old button, I'll kill you. I'll kill you if you even think of doing something like that. So how long did it take you to get out of the editing department? Oh, roughly about eight months. Oh man. So you just were you begging every day, like please let oh, me out yeah. of here. Let but me see you <clears throat> like you have the avid for editing now, you've seen the upright movieola that it's in the uh, office there. Yeah. We had one that had eight sound heads that ran with it, the picture, so you could have all your different soundtracks and everything. So you got to edit sound. Oh, yeah. Was that part fun at least? Part of the editing, having to know how to edit and put that stuff in sync and make sure it worked. And uh, I did all of that in the editing room. And after that, I got to go to record. In fact, we were doing a, a show that uh, two actors from uh, Hollywood was there. One was Lyle Bittner, who was a, used to play a, a toughie in a lot of westerns and a lot of other things. And uh, this is a safety film. I'm trying to remember the name of it. The movie, the movie was called The Joker, a guy who was always joking around in the steel mill, and the film that had been shot was in black and white, and the Joker appeared in color in a cartoon all through the show, and Lyle was doing some voiceovers to replace this, place some of the things in it. He couldn't remember his lines, and he never got a good take when we were doing the voiceover, and I was sitting at the console recording. I think we were up to take number there were 20-something, I don't know. Yeah. And finally we got a good take because the uh, 
it, they had shot the, some video of it, and they were shooting up there, and the director was sitting in the studio with me. And he says, oh, great. Oh, because he was sitting there, and he said, great. How was that for you, Cameron? Because they shot it through a window where they could see him doing this. Cameron says, perfect. Everything was just right. He moved his head right in the right microphone in the right direction and everything. And he says, the camera person said it was perfect for you. Then he turned over to me and says, how was it for you, son? And I happened to glance through the window to the back room to where the machines were and the red light wasn't on. Oh, no. And I said, it was a good take, but I forgot to press record. Did you get fired? No. <laughs> Because we do always continuously had a, a quarter inch tape running all the time it was on that. Okay. And, but they wanted it on 35 millimeter and I had not pressed the record for that. So is that the last time you ever and, made that mistake? No, that was the first time that, and, and uh, when I told the director, he says, it's a good thing you told me that it wasn't good for you. He says, because I knew that you hadn't pressed record. I would have fired you. Wow. But everybody <laughs> laughed in the studio because they know how difficult it was to get Lyle's lines and to get it perfectly. So we had to do it again. We went, I think, nine or ten more takes before we got another perfect take from him. Yeah. And every time, whenever they would, uh, you know, when they give you the action camera, they said, roll sound. I would roll the sound, look, and make double sure that the red light was on. Even the person who was in the machine room, sometimes if you would forget to record, they would press the record button for you. And at this particular take when we did that, he was not back there and he didn't, he didn't hear the thing to roll sound and record. If, if, he, if, if he had been there, I wouldn't have made that mistake. I'd have been covered, but it was real fun to see that. How come we don't have a recording light outside the Peterson studio? Well, there was one, because this is a re-recording studio, not a recording studio. If we had a recording studio, it would be a red light out there. Can you explain the difference? On. Well, you can look at it. Look, we're sitting right now in the Peterson recording studio. A re-recording studio is all the sounds that are brought in here have been pre-recorded someplace else on something else and you are brought in here to mix. You have a soundproof booth. But that's not the focus is what that's you're saying. That's not, not, not the focus. This is not a, this is a film school that doesn't have a sound stage. If we had a sound stage, we would have a red light and when you close the door to shoot film and to do sync recording, you would have a red light there. Okay. See, this is just for re-recording. Why you see the tables and the chairs? Usually, this is when you bring your clients or your people in to evaluate both picture and sound. If it's good, or we're gonna stick with this, or we're gonna go with this, or what? So this is like a, a, a screening room for yeah, sound. Yeah. This much. is for, for sound and for picture. This is what uh, Modar put. This is motion picture sound. The Peterson Sound Studio used to be motion picture sound in Cleveland. And it was large enough to have 
two baby grands in his re recording studio A. And he could put the, Pittsburgh, the Cleveland Symphony in the studio. Wow. And you probably have heard of the OJs. Mm -hmm. Their first recording was done at Motion Picture Sound in Cleveland. Really? Oh, yeah. Motion Picture Sound in Cleveland, he did both video, film sound, and also had a screening area for every dealer around every theater who ever wanted to preview movies before they wanted to book them for the theater. They had a screening room for that, and we, where you see the 35 millimeter projector that you see in our office out there. Mm -hmm. There were six of those because they had a special room for that screening. So is this? Is this uh, screen, like the projector and everything, calibrated for, for proper... It, yes, it would. The screen has been designed for that, for type of screening. And where did you get these, these four-foot-tall, massive, analog, <laughs> beautiful Speaker. cabinet speakers? These happen to be... Uh, for our listeners, there are, there are some massive... But I'll get a picture of these. There are some massive speakers in the sound studio here. They are voice of the theater. They are the standard theater type of speakers that would be used in the theater. And why you see this beautiful cabinet around is the fact that if you would see the voice of theater speakers, they're horrible looking things. Oh, yeah. But in order to keep this client for receptive for clients who come in, Mr. Peterson had these uh, speakers particularly made up with the cabinet on the outside so it looked good into the room when people would come in, when you'd have uh, commercial people like presidents of uh, General Tire, all the other Ford Motor Company, and, and people from all the big companies come in to s sit in the re-recording room to see this stuff. It had to look nice. Nice furniture. And that's why you had the nice furniture and the nice chairs, and you see all of this. Mm -hmm. Everything is basically laid out the same it was in that facility. How did that facility get from Cleveland to Athens? Well, Mr. Peterson gave it to a part of it. We only got, OU only got a part of it. This part, the re-recording studio, had very good ties with um, L.A. If the studios were busy for voiceover recording or any type of uh, voiceover, or dialogue replacement, they would fly actors from Cleveland to, I mean, from L.A. to Cleveland to do that recording and put in uh, motion picture sound simply because his facility was equal to the Goldwyn Studios, Glen Glen Sound, any studio. If you would go right now to Skywalker Farm and you see the 35-millimeter machine we have in the back, audio recorder. Skywalker Farm has one there which they've converted to an 8-track machine. The serial numbers would be roughly three or four numbers different from what you had on the equipment here. Really? And if you see the award there, you can see that the Academy had cited Peterson Studio for the equipment that they use for an Academy standards. Huh. Yeah, people like in the booth that we had over in the Lindley Hall before we came over here, this was not totally planned, but when you were in the facility over in, in Lindley Hall, the chairs, the table, 
the ceiling tile, the wall treatment, the equipment, the equipment and the carpet and everything came from the facility in Cleveland for motion picture sound. So what what kind of uh, what kind of actors, famous people recorded? Oh, the, the famous Peterson. people in that booth have been Sammy Davis Jr., Frank Sinatra, Robert Streisand, Fred Rogers. Uh, I, could, I couldn't tell you all of them. That's, in fact, awesome. we still have some quarter-inch recordings that uh, some of the actors did. Really? And that for replacement, yes. And some maybe you might find on 35 uh, tracks there. Can I can I listen to them sometime? And, this, and see what another unusual thing when it was motion picture sound in Cleveland, I used to mix my National Geographic take my National Geographic shows there to mix, also with Fred Rogers into motion picture sound. They were mixing that. That's how I why I knew so much about the studio and the facility, because I did that before it even came here. So before you were even a professor at OU, you'd already worked with the Peterson Sound Studio. Before before I even came to here. Okay, I so how did how did how did you meet Fred Rogers? <laughs> of Mr. Rogers neighborhood. This is this is what you're probably best known for. And it's nope. probably nope. No, that's not what you're best known for? That's best what I knew you for. Best known for National Geographic. But one of the things that I've done is that uh, I sailed from Hawaii to Tahiti on a double-hull canoe. Did you really? Oh, yes. Did you have your sound equipment with you? Well, our special equipment was designed to operate on the camera. If you will look at some of the cameras, the first time was a, a microphone had ever been mounted on top of a 16-millimeter camera, and which would be the Area SR, which you, we use here yeah, now. Yeah. I mean, we designed equipment so because there's not enough space for me to be continuously or a sound person continuously on the boat. I was on a chase boat that sails from Hawaii to Tahiti with them. Occasionally I would go from the chase boat over to the canoe to check on equipment. But we had equipment designed so that... Uh, the camera person was both the camera person and the sound person. What happened is the fact when he would start the camera, would also roll a little small SN recorder, which would put a beep on the track, and he could get sound recorded from the microphone that's on the camera, or put a wireless on someone else, and this would transfer to the be recorded, it would record the sound, also play it back in the cameraman's ear to let him know when he was out of film. It was a, in the 1976 American Cinematography, you can see all of these articles in it. Wow. And these are, that's just one of the things. So, that so is that like the first shotgun mounted it wasn't microphone. a shotgun. It wasn't shotgun. Sennheiser had not developed, had not released, and using the four sixteen shotgun at that time. So what kind of mic was it? It was a, a Sheps. Okay. Which is in that, and what has happened since then? You will come roughly maybe two years later. Thor Heidal's expedition, the Tigris use the same type of equipment, and then that's when the 416 microphone was mounted on the camera. 
Okay, so you you paved the way. Oh yeah. For for putting a force. That's great. A lot John, of things. I had no idea. Oh yeah. That was just a few of the things that I've done. What was the pickup pattern on the Sheps that was mounted on that? It was a cardioid pattern. Yeah. Okay. Right. A small condenser microphone in it. What kind of battery? You probably had to have a lot of battery packs along for the ride with that. We had camera. to use because a uh, company, Cody in uh, Boston, Stuart Cody, had developed a lithium battery. And we had battery packs that would operate the camera and the sound equipment. And uh, I think uh, each battery, the lithium battery, could roughly get to about. 10 or 12 magazines from the SR and everything. That's not bad. Uh-uh. Uh, so that's what happened. We had a lot of experimental stuff that if you, you know, could get that uh, cinematographer magazine, there's stories in there. It was the first time I'd usually underwater, waterproof equipment for camera they usually cameras are designed to have underwater stuff and it's to go underwater. The camera housing and everything like that would weigh almost 300 pounds it's for a camera work. person to take that down underwater. But we were all above water, but you couldn't have anything waterproof that heavy up there for a camera to person to use. So what happened is that uh, National Geographic and its custom shop designed and built a plastic waterproof covering that goes over the camera. Also a waterproof housing for the little small nagra that we use. Nice. And I had to use a special windscreen to keep salt water out of the microphones and out of the electronics. So what did you do during a thunderstorm or a typhoon? <laughs> Just pack everything up on the chase boat? Is that what nope. you did? They would still record it and work with it. The chase boat was recording sound. Also, they would record sound on the uh, canoe. So All this stuff was designed because the producer, Dale Bell, who is also the producer of uh, Woodstock, told me, he says, Bear, which is my nickname, he says, we're going to do this. I want to be able to record sound 24-7. I says, what? He says, 24-7 on the canoe. I says, on a sailboat, water, and all these things which would be detrimental to recording equipment. He says, yes, do it. So we had to do it. <laughs> and thanks to National Geographic's custom shop and building these things, we spent a lot of time. This is a documentary. It was roughly in three years in the making. And uh, we did it. And a lot of stuff that we did and developed from that sh particular shoot allowed National Geographic to have us equipment to do for Tigris, for Thor Heidel and his expedition, which was sailing on a reed boat down the Persian Gulf. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to complete the boat trip from the Persian Gulf from Baghdad down around Cape Hope, South Africa. When he got to Cape Hope, the cinematographer was supposed to have gotten off and I was supposed to replace him and go from Cape Hope to South America. Thank God, 
Thor burned the, the boat at Dajabuti simply because he had an international crew, and at that particular time, Somalia and, uh, and uh, Dajabuti were at war, and he didn't think because he had crew members from each one of those countries on, on the reed boat, and he didn't think that it would be wise to sail when they got two people on there from the two countries who were at war. So he decided to burn the boat. I says, thank God I didn't have to get on the reed boat to go. So did you do so, other projects for National Geographic? Oh, yes. Where else did you go? Oh, I've been to uh, quite a few things at Tigris that we uh, climbed off of the mountains for the National Oceanographer Society. I have spent six months in the Antarctic. But then, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, so what, what, tell me about the Antarctica project. <laughs> oh. Because, okay, because... Look, there's so many things that I would start to tell you that sometimes people say, oh, John hasn't done that. Well, he hasn't done that. Oh, he said it's impossible. Well, usually I tell people when I start to tell you things like this and you want to know, I says, hey, you don't have to believe me. There's a, mag- a book. It used to do uh, biographies and information on people called Marcus Who's Who. Mm-hmm. Go look at them. There's two of them, uh, two of them that are, it, you'll see everything about me in it. Really? Yeah. Is it in the library? They're in the library. If they still have them for, I think it's from 1990 or 1992. They are in my office if you wanted to see them. Yeah, sure. And I uh, spent that time. I've also spent some time from Nome to Anchorage, Alaska on a dog sled. Recording sound. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of special preparations did you have to make for recording sound in Antarctica? Well, in the, in the Antarctic, is everything had to be, lubricants and everything that was in the recorders had to be removed. And uh, what you know is like the silicones and all the negative things that you have now that we use for lubricant, they would freeze. This was 25, or th- this is almost 40 years ago. Did you have to take all your equipment apart and like we clean to, out the lubricants? We had to take all that stuff out and we had to replace the lubricant so the recorders would roll and the cameras would roll. And I had a device to heat. I built a device to heat the rollers so the emulsion went through the camera rollers. It wouldn't take the emulsion off from freezing to give it a certain temperature. And uh, the stuff in the batteries and the uh, recorders, the lubricant so it wouldn't freeze, we had to utilize graphite. Does that work as a lubricant? Yeah, it could work as a lubricant. Didn't know that. See, uh, well, a lot I of guess things. that makes sense. So, did you just like draw graphite on all the gears right, and things? Ground like up graphite and put it in all the places where you had moving parts. <laughs> Excuse me, both in the camera and in, in the uh, recorders. So, did you have to say instead of like roll sound, roll camera? You, you had have, to say you didn't have that in the stuff. The you had stuff, to say roll heater. This stuff was just <laughs> placed outside and monitoring penguins because at that particular time they were trying to find out the male and female penguins and the only time they could really find that out is when they would uh, mate 
and they would uh, make a, a specific sound, and we had to record that. And later on, these lately, lately within the last five or ten years, the guys have done it now, and they've had it much easier than what we did. Right. And uh, all all kind of crazy things you had to do. And what happens is that we were supposed to have only been there roughly six weeks, and we ended up being there for almost four months because they couldn't get a plane to come in and land and take off to take us out. What kind of food did you eat? Oh, normal food because the military had insulations there, the Air Force and the Army, and you had regular meals. Mm-hmm. And they were had well supplied. Nothing there deteriorates, you know. Right. And uh, you could find we found food that was left there when the explore, explorers went there in the 1900s, in 1904 and five and six, hams and other things, fruits. None of this stuff had deteriorates. And even when we le- left going in out, we had to take all of our waste and everything out as well. So, because nothing deteriorates there. So, what would you? What did you have to do? I'm, I'm guessing that you've recorded sound in tropical environments, right. a- Other than from Hawaii to Tahiti, what kind of considerations did you have to keep in mind when you're well, recording that, like, real humidity? Well, at that particular time, using an analog recorder, which would work anywhere, all the time, Anagra was very good, very well built. There's no special things you'd have to do it for. Was it because it was sealed? And no, because the way it's designed and its equipment was worth it. You would, wouldn't need any uh, special treatment to go into the desert. The only place you would need special treatment was for the Antarctic or places like that. Even like these microphone cables that you had there. Mm-hmm. Is the fact if you threw it on the floor when you were in Antarctica, it would freeze and flake just like cornflakes. So we had to use a special microphone cable, and all type of cables had to be used. It'd be something similar to the ironing cords that would be made out of cloth because that wouldn't freeze. Okay. And uh, luckily, using a special uh, cold room for one of the companies that we used at the time uh, let us use a room because they made uh, tires for the space shuttles and because the rubber tires for it to go out into outer space and come back, they had to have a special insulation on the tires because they would freeze and we thought entering space going through a hot temperature of re-entering a space, they had to have a special type of tar. So did you spend a lot of time with NASA figuring no. out sound equipment? No, I can't tell. These are some things I can't tell you. I can't talk about you, huh? Did you sign a NDA? Did you sign a non-disclosure agreement? Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. I can't. A lot of the things that we did is not public available to the public. A lot of the things that I do, and the fact that, like, what can you tell me? Because this is interesting, John. <laughs> Nothing. I, I, I really, because you've been all over the place, and 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 you've already told you've told me a couple stories, you know, before we were recording. I, I know I can tell you a few things, but some things I can't talk about. Okay. 
And I just just leave it that. Just, okay. just, just leave it at that, please. Okay. All right. Okay. What 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 does but L? I've been on f- I've been on two or three of the deserts to record sound. I've uh, the only place I haven't recorded sound are places in outer space, in mainland China. I've dived off the coast of Ecuador in a diving bell to record sound of what they have seen of a, of a volcano erupting in the bottom of the ocean. Uh, gee. <laughs> okay, did you, ever do any, think about. did you ever do any, did you ever do any, excuse me, any music production? Oh, yes. Like what? I have not a music production, but I have recorded music for groups and for organizations. Because uh, I know you recorded I've the recorded Pittsburgh Opera, right, or something like that. The Pittsburgh Symphony. Symphony, okay. I've recorded. Uh, it would be uh, Count Bass's uh, music he recorded for the Valentine's beer commercial, before the Basie Band. I recorded. Uh, there was a thing with Dizzy Gillespie when he was traveling, which is an unusual story, he was traveling uh, to high schools and doing bands. This was for a show called The Cavalcade of Bands. And I've uh, done Dave Brubeck. Really? Oh, yeah. Louis Armstrong. <laughs> you you recorded Louis Armstrong? These are bands of shows that used to be on television called The Cavalcade of Bands. So you would work, so you worked for that show, and through that show you got to record all these famous people coming right, through. Right. Did you ever say hi? I say had to follow them. In fact, we would, uh, the crew, the film crew, and the crew that the people I was working for at that time, Drew Associates did it for the Bell Telephone Company. And Bell Telephone sponsored it on the tele- on, uh, on television, these shows called the Cavalcade of Bands, and I've got to work with the different groups who record those. Did you meet Louis Armstrong? Oh yes. Is he a nice guy? He's a very good guy. I saw a picture on your office door of Snoop Dogg. Right. Do you know Snoop Dogg? Yeah. How do you know Snoop Dogg? Well, if you saw the Snoop Dogg picture and also. The guy that's standing beside him, who is Marlo Taylor, who's a former student here. He has a studio in Cleveland, which I designed for him, Studio 76. Snoop Doggy Dog was there in that studio. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's where I met him. Man. And Marlo is now busy doing feature films right now. First Kill is the one he's doing right now, mixing sound for. So he's a sound engineer. Uh-huh. So he's doing what you did. He's a local, yeah. He's in the IATSE and the National Union. Is he still in Cleveland? He's in Cleveland. He still has a studio in Cleveland. And he still does a lot of the rap. He has about 16 or 17 platinum records for rap music or the hip-hop music 
people who have used that studio has been Heavy D, uh, Bones, Thugs, and Harmony. <laughs> Wait, do you mean Chuck Snoop D? Snoop Dogg. Wait, is, huh? it Ch- is it Chuck D or is it Chuck D? Yeah. Or he- Heavy, I don't know. Okay, so Bones, Thugs, and I don't, I don't can't tell you all the <laughs> stars that have been in the studio. Okay. They all have seen it and been in it and what have you. That's great. And I designed it in fact that some of the things that uh, if you saw the studio and saw the facility in fact his mother it's in a house that they had his mother lived on the second floor above the studio really and you could never hear anything from the from her apartment you couldn't even hear the toilet flush if they used the toilet up above the studio. So how did you soundproof? Oh, can't tell you that. It's a oh, butler secret. Oh, come on. That's a butler secret. All right. What does the L in John L. Butler stand for? <laughs> tell me that. Well, can't tell you that either because I told the class now, as I used to tell the class, if anybody could guess my middle middle name, I'd give the whole class an A. And, Has uh, anyone ever guessed it? No. In fact, a uh, couple of times, a couple of people have tried to find out they had called my mother, and she would laugh and tell them, no, I can't tell you. And even they tried the Social Security and a few other places, and they got visits from uh, a few of the federal authorities that wanted to know, why do you want to know this about John Butler? And they wouldn't tell you. Does that have to do with some of your secret work? It could be. In fact, as funny as my uncle used to tell when he lived with my mother in Pittsburgh and all the people in the neighborhood used to uh, ask me, what have you done? I said, what have I done? They says, because we've been the FBI and certain people have come along and interviewed everybody on the street. They wanted to know about me and my past and what have you. And my Uncle Bill says, what have you done? Have you bothered somebody's wife that is a senator or a representative? I says, no, I've never done anything like that. But these are the kind of things that have happened. And uh, luckily, one of the students, Martin Wooten, happened to... One day when we were in the Lindley Hall, I needed something out of my briefcase in the uh, my office, and I asked him to go get it, and he went and got it, and by accident he discovered my passport, and he come back, and he said, he didn't say anything, he just asked me, he says, but your middle name probably happened to be XYZ, and I said, yes, why? He says, now I got the right one. He told everybody in the classroom, he says, I'll tell you. I'll sell it to you so you can get the A. So that's when still people are starting to guess it, and I hate it. Oh, so you just don't like your middle name? I don't like it. And if I told you, and then all these people would know too, so. I understand, you don't want to broadcast it. I understand. But it's an unusual name, and you'll never guess it. 
That's okay. Well, I'm going to give up now because okay. I don't have the time or energy to try to guess your middle name. All right. Maybe after we're finished with this podcast, I might tell you. I would love that, John. Okay. I'm really good at keeping secrets. All right. But so, even after, just so that this class now that we are having, the first year class doesn't know, I would tell you because some of them might be listening. Somebody would tell them, so I won't tell you. Okay, all right. Right well. now, I won't tell you on the podcast, but I'll tell you afterwards. Okay. I'm I'm, I'm still disappointed you're not going to tell me how you soundproofed uh, your student's uh, studio. It's okay. It's okay. okay. I'll be fine. I, I've actually been putting lead-lined sound blankets up. That's been helping kill the sound in my studio. Uh-huh. Um, but I've noticed that in here you have, like, these kind of foam panels right. on the walls with, like, fabric on them. So, I mean, there's not just one way to do it, right? You there's were telling many, me. many ways to do it. Like, this is designed for re-recording so that you notice that no two walls are the same. You oh, notice yeah. in the corners that you see, those are bass traps to trap the bass frequencies so that they don't reflect around. You notice it doesn't go all the way to the floor. Why is that? Oh, this is all... The design in the way it's designed for acoustically treating the room so you would sound like a theater. Okay. Now, this room is not totally re totally soundproof the way it should be for a theater. When the construction people built this, they didn't take this, this wall all the way up to the ceiling. That's why you can hear everything all over in the basement. Okay. Because it's like... The baffle right above the speaker goes above the ceiling, goes all over the building. And they need to take the wall all the way up and acoustically treat it. It's interesting to me that someone told me, um, a, a voiceover actor named Gary Bridges once told me that you don't want a, sound, a room to be completely soundproof. Right, you don't. Because then it sounds unnatural. Well, if you were in a, the only place where it's totally... Sound has to have some air to travel on. The only place where you would have a totally soundproof place would be a Nakanoa chamber. And if you were in one... Uh, a what chamber? I'm sorry. An Akanoa chamber. Which is, yeah, which is designed for soundproofing. And uh, if you would go into one, you would, could actually go inside and stand still, and you could actually hear the blood falling off your head. And there's one in Detroit, one in Boston. There's, uh, they have an Akinoid chamber here for antennas here at OU. There are a couple others I can't think of right now, but it would be a room that has very no air, it would be the same acoustical treatment with wedges and different things and shapes and forms all around on one half of it. The other half, you would have a wire floor that you could stand on, and it would be the same below it, the equal distance above and equal distance below. And when you close the door, no air, very little air movement. You have to for a sound totally soundproof it would have to be a total vacuum. So how why why is the sound booth here have hard surfaces with holes in it? It has, it has acoustical treatment in it. But 
So be, that behind the the hard behind surface, it, behind that, so behind that, it has acoustical treatment of acoustical materials. It might be lamb's wool. It might be cotton. It might be fiberglass. It all depends on the people who build that booth and build that design. What they put inside of for acoustical treatment. If you go in and stand. And just for a few minutes, you'll find out it is not totally soundproof. You can hear sounds from out here. But it's in a, a level low enough that you can record without those sounds interfering with you. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So it's not necessarily the fact that there's a hard surface. It's the fact that if a hard surface doesn't have anything for the sound to go through, like the holes that are in right, the perforations. That's what it does. Okay, all right. That's what the holes are for to go in there to absorb the sound. And if you look at it very closely, you will see that the walls are not the same in that booth. Okay. Man. I'll figure it out someday, John. What? What? To some of the things that you uh, you've gone to the uh, point of uh, putting up lead bath. Uh, blankets. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you can use, which is very cheap and very easy to utilize, is mattresses. You can use those. You get Just old you, cheap ones. I mean, that's... Oh, yeah, <laughs> old cheap ones. We either go to, uh, what is it, Goodwill that has some that they've taken up that they've sterilized and cleaned, and build your booth out of that. That's a good idea. You've got... You have four walls. You can put one even. You wouldn't have to put one over the top. You could put something like this acoustical tile up there f to make your clouds over it so that it's all not the same. And you, if you notice, you can space it differently so it's not totally, totally square and soundproof and blocking off everything. I once made my own booth because I found uh, three doors like old doors on the sidewalk mm -hmm. in Philly. I took them inside. I got hinges for them, and I made a little booth. And then I got, um, I went to Home Depot, and all the extra carpet cuttings that they tried to get rid of, I grabbed a bunch of that and nailed it up right. and put a microphone in the middle of it. That was my first recording booth. <laughs> <laughs> it worked. It works. It works good. Yeah, it, it, it all worked. depends on simple things. And uh, some things you can utilize, too. You know, the eggshell cases that you get the eggshells that have the different spots for the eggs. Mm -hmm. the acoustical treatment. One end. Keep hitting my microphone. John. One in, <laughs> one out like this, going around the wall. I can use, that can help you treat a, a space or a wall for acoustical thing. It doesn't sound proof it, proof it but it also breaks it up to sound so that you have good acoustics in the room. There are so many things that you can do. Yeah. I mean, mostly it's just a matter of, well, I, I've heard a lot of people record in their closet. Oh, yeah. In the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Or in a car, a luxury car that's right. designed to be quiet. You can well, do that sure. Too. If the limousine, I have recorded uh, voices of actors at the airports. And by putting them in the limousine because they had to catch a flight in the last minute to get the voice over or some lines for them to read. And they wonder, how are we going to do this? Okay, we got a limousine, get a limousine, get in there and record it. 
And you've, you've been in limousines, haven't you? You yeah. know how quiet they are. I think one time I was in a limousine. I tried. They make I don't have the idea. budget. And even now, a lot of the automobiles are so quiet that um, if you're not running the motor, and particularly if you've got a, a hybrid or a regular electric motor, vehicle and you can move you can actually record in that with no problems at all hmm. and in fact uh, there's a joke about the, the Rolls Royce car in fact it's just so quiet you can't hear anything in it and they had uh, one of the guys had the vice president of Rolls Royce or the president of Rolls Royce to ride in one of the cars to to tell him how quiet it was. He wanted to see how quiet it was. And he took a trip in it around London for a few blocks. And he came back and he says, what it is, what's wrong? He says, I can hear the clock. Fix it. <laughs> so. Wow. That's how quiet it was. So these are the things that you might come up with. I don't know, all the things that you want to do. There's so many things that Sound is fascinating. One of the things you told me in class, or actually it was after class, I asked you, is you were telling me that there are some sounds that you feel, but you can't actually hear. Oh, yeah. So when you get to those kind of frequencies, how do you, if you're doing post-production on that kind of stuff? You won't, I don't think uh, you'd be doing anything in post-production or in films that you're going to have frequencies that high that you will actually feel the free, those frequencies, high frequencies, even the low frequencies. Well, look at the stuff that you have on the uh, subwoofers that you have with the hip-hop music. Mm -hmm. You can actually feel the vibrations from it. Right. But uh, you, you, you don't want to hear that on the, in a film or see that when you go to the movies. In fact, some theaters are equipped with subwoofers to give you a special feeling of the, some of the sound effects that you might come through with. Is that why listening to music live sounds better than on headphones and, and like what? on speakers? When you, when you hear live music? Is it because your whole body's feeling it instead of just like a yeah, little? Your environment is totally different. Look at what you have with your headphones on right now. Look how close you are, that sound is to you. What's coming there to interfere? Nothing. Okay, then if you take it off and you can hear something, it looks a little better. There's something there for sound to move on to travel. And it's, you can hear it. Okay. So, in fact, uh, I was the one person I knew that was building an electronic mousetrap. He was going to kill mice with high frequencies. Can you do that? Is that possible? I don't, he wasn't successful, <laughs> but he blew out a lot of high-frequency horns, and quite a few people had headaches mm -hmm. who were working w with him in the laboratory because of the high frequencies. But I don't know whether Jack ever completed his uh, electronic mousetrap with sound. Okay, I got a question for you about recording music. When you recorded the Pittsburgh Symphony, did you mic 
different sections, or did you use an yeah. omnidirectional mic? Or all use, of it? I use uh, cardioid microphones for each section. And also there's one microphone that I don't know whether I dem- demonstrated for you. Uh, a sound field microphone. I, ca- I can't it remember. It has five capsules in it. And uh, it was hung upon when he was alive and conducting the symphony. I had him to listen to it and the assistant conductor to stand where he would stand and tell me what does you hear coming through the headphones from the microphone that you would hear when you were conducting so we'd know where to place this microphone. So you had to go in there and talk to the person who knew how oh, it was yeah. supposed to. You, you, you didn't just go in there and do your own thing. No. Okay. John McClure was a, also one of the best uh, sound person for doing classical music who was a lead recording engineer on this. And he asked, uh, when we were testing out the sound field microphone, Lauren Mann, Lauren Mizell, and he said, gee, when he was standing there listening in the headphones, he said, if you could just move the microphone two feet to the left, I would hear every instrument that I hear when I'm conducting. And we made an adjustment on the width of the pattern electronically. He says, that's it. How did you do it? He, was <laughs> in, he, he wanted to know if we, anyone had gone up there and moved the microphone, but we didn't. So it was the pickup pattern. The pickup pattern, we changed the width of it. Man. So, yeah, that, that's something a lot of people don't realize. That if you want to, one of these days, maybe I'll demo. I just demoed it for my... Mixing Techniques class the other day. Oh, really? Last week. You know, I'm a microphone fanatic and freak that I collect them. I have a whole bunch of uh, ribbon microphones, Mm -hmm. condenser microphones, and what have you. And people, just recently, someone sent me an early Shure microphone which was maybe the first model of the Shure SM58. From what they, year? Oh, this one's probably, this one came, it was a high impedance microphone. This was done in the late 40s or early 50s, this microphone, and it still works. Yeah? Is it phantom power? No, it doesn't need any power. It's a dynamic microphone. Okay. That's what the Shure's, when the first microphones were, dynamic. Very few condenser microphones because it was difficult to get power out in the field to get 48 volts. You had to build up a power supply and you maybe have to have something this size of this device here. You didn't have batteries or design. I think in the early 60s that Kodelsky got had a phantom, phantom power supply built into the recorders, which was a T power, so they could take the power from the batteries that was in the recorder to power phantom uh, condenser type microphones. And with the electronics and the chips and what have you, actually, you take a 9 volt battery and you put it into a circuit, double a circuit, 
in the power supply and you get 48 volts. You're feeding 48 volts to a microphone coming from a 9 volt source because it's the microphone doesn't have a brain. It can't think. It doesn't know that that's only 9 volts developing this 48 volts for me. Mm-hmm. So you can get away with it. Could I plug one of your ribbon microphones into this? Oh, yeah. But what might happen, this is a has fa- phantom power. You can also, without phantom power, the sensitivity of the ribbon microphones would not be so great that you'd probably need a preamp to go into for the ribbon microphone to go into before going into that. Okay. I've noticed that on all of the uh, equipment lately now that consoles because of the sensitivity of the uh, electronics and the uh, chips and the condensers and microphones that they have today. They're so sensitive they put out so much level compared to what the old ribbon microphones that uh, the ribbon microphones you can barely hear them. And so I have a preamp that I put them into and I feed it into line output from the uh, microphone into a device or either into a microphone level. and all depends on which I want to do. What kind of speakers do you like using? Did I like? I, I mean, is there, I was talking to some, um, when I was at the High Noon internship this past summer, I was asking around what kind of speakers I should buy because I want to get like, you know, really nice speakers. And they said, whatever sounds good. Right. That's all I heard. Is that is that what you say too? See that? Yeah, I can't afford your massive cabinet analog speakers. You don't have to John. get the massive cabinet. There's some right behind you. Which oh, is good. Okay. Now, what happens, whatever sounds good, go to a place, a music store, or a place who sells speakers, and to buy the speakers. If you go in there and you get a, a pair of speakers that's Cost only $29. They sound good to you. That's the best speaker in the world. It's that simple. That simple. Whatever sounds good to you, because what's good for your ears may not be good for my ears. You've got to satisfy your ears. But what if you're a sound engineer and it has Same to sound. Same way. So, you, so whatever sounds good for your ears right. is going to. That's what I would have. But you would design. Something like this for if you're designing for a big operation, for a theater, for a studio, then you would want to go and get speakers that are going to give you a flat response. A flat response? Yeah. Meaning? The same same level at all frequencies. Okay. Can you go, can you explain that a little bit more? Because I'm not quite sure what. what. You have a line at zero, zero level. And you'd want to get speakers that are going to pass all the frequencies are going to go across that line, all the way across zero at the same level. So do some speakers have like a curve or like some a different? Some have a curve. Some will have something that give you a boost on the high end. Some will give you a boost on the low end. Like my speakers, like I was talking about. I don't know. <laughs> and then there's some who give you a boost in the mid-range or some that's in the soft. It's also designed. Also, you have to worry out a thing. What type of dispersion does it have? Is it a horizontal dispersion? It's vertical dispersion. 
Is it 130 degrees or 110 degrees or it's 90 degrees? It all depends. So these speakers behind me are, that's a flat. Yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty flat. Okay, because when we watch the conversation on these speakers, I've mentioned that movie, I think probably like on half the podcast that I've made because I enjoyed it so much. So thank you for showing that in class on this amazing system because it was really cool to watch it. It was also really cool to see, well, not even to see, to hear that how Walter Murch was using different microphones for different scenes mm-hmm. in different situations. You could actually hear the difference when the, when the speakers are good enough. So I know that it's we're running a little bit late here, John. No, we're not. Uh, no. <laughs> but I really... I'll give you some uh, some more time. Okay. We should probably do this a, a, another time to get more discussions. But um, I so on a personal note, I, much like probably every one of your students, grew up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Right. And I wanted to ask you about that because you've told me before, but I wanted my listeners to hear about it too. Because when I found out that you recorded sound for Mr. Rogers' Uh, I just I, I, I was completely blown away by that. And then when you showed us the episode that you appeared in about recording sound, I thought that was wonderful. So can you tell me a little bit about how you got involved with that production? I mean, was that in Pittsburgh? Did they produce it that? It was in Pittsburgh. Uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was developed, and the studios and everything were at the public broadcast station, WQED in Pittsburgh. And I happened to be a member of the staff in the f- at the University of Pittsburgh, I mean, at WQED in Pittsburgh. And Fred Rogers' show was in there. And every time that he would probably do an opera every year for the show, and it means it had to go out from the studio to do it on location. And they would always ask me to go to go do that. And that's how I got to know Fred and got to work with the neighborhood an awful lot of doing sound for the operas. And also offering suggestions because some of the things that happened in the neighborhood that I lived in, when I first moved into that neighborhood in Pittsburgh, in fact, it was into a neighborhood where a lot of senior citizens lived. And I used to... When I would go, it was on the hillside in Pittsburgh, up in Fineview. When I'd go home, I'd always go up the hill and come around and turn around and come down the hill and leave the park. So in case in the wintertime, I could just slide on out down the hill and not have to worry about spinning or getting stuck. Mm -hmm. And so I kept up that habit both in the summer. And one day I came home, and all these kids were lined up along the sidewalk. And I wanted to know, what the hell happened? And I asked my wife, I says, what are all these kids out on the sidewalk for? He says, oh, you dummy, you were on Mr. Rogers today. <laughs> and I'd never thought about it, of, you know, of being on Fred or knowing of being on this show and what have you. And also, one incident happened, some of the things that I would talk to Fred or to Mr. Rogers about sometimes I'd suggest him to him as one of the kids on my street got hit by a bicycle. Uh, no, by a car on his bike. 
And when they called the ambulance for him to take him to the hospital to see what was wrong, he was crying and yelling and saying, no, don't take me to the hospital, don't take me to the hospital. And everybody could not figure out why he didn't want to go to the hospital. And I asked him, I says, why is it? He says, if I go to the hospital, I won't come home. He says, what do you mean you won't come home? And he had talked about two or three other people on the street who had gone to the hospital who were senior citizens who died and didn't come back from the hospital. Oh, man. And he was afraid that if he went to the hospital, he wouldn't come back home. And talking to things like that, just like when I was recording and played that stuff back for you on Fred, well, always constantly trying to find sounds of things that frighten kids. Well, one of the things I would always do and I'd always tell him other stories. So right after then, he started doing a series of Mr. Rogers goes to the dentist. Mr. Rogers goes to the hospital. Mr. Rogers does this and does that in every place wherever you go. When the kids would see that, they wouldn't be afraid of it. And it was amazing to do that. And that's and every time when they wrote that script that they wanted me to be on the show and uh, to demonstrate that recording of what I do and the fact that a lot of people who see that show and I was out trying to get the sounds that were that were wanted for that show. And you heard the cow? Right, yeah, yeah. That's not a cow, you know. Is that you? That's me. Because <laughs> all the dairy farms and every place is now, they have electronic milking machines. Cows don't make that noise anymore. So I've traveled all around Allegheny County and Pittsburgh and everywhere trying to get the sound of a cow. And so I says, okay, I locked myself in a booth like that and did it myself about, I guess, about a hundred times trying to make that cow. Did they? Did anyone uh, know that it was? Very was... few people know. <laughs> in fact. Um, I was trying to get crickets and all these sounds, and I discovered uh, things about crickets and making sounds because we were worried about sounds that kids might hear in the daytime. And if they hear them at night, they might frighten them. And so I was busy collecting these type of sounds to give to Fred to use on the show so that kids could hear this so they wouldn't be afraid of those sounds. And these are the this is the type of relationship and the things that I had going with the neighborhood, and I would do certain things for the show, but I still have to keep up the things I did for WQED and for National Geographic because WQED and National Geographic were tied together. So you were on loan, kind of, from Mr. Rogers. I was on loan to Mr. Rogers. Okay. And uh, you'll find it. Fred was a wonderful person. Also, uh, a practical joker. Yeah. He's also uh, a Presbyterian minister. I knew that. And all the things that people said about him being uh, a seal. Yeah, was he a sniper? (laughs) Snipers and all that stuff. That's all crap. Okay. He was a page at uh, NBC. 
in New York before he started his first show. Uh, I'm sorry, a what? What was he? Uh, a page. What do you mean? What, is, what does that mean? These are guys at uh, NBC and CBS at their studios in New York. Like if you wanted to go see a show, to uh, have ushers and people to uh, for different shows. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if you get signed to a special show, you'd be a page for Johnny Carson's show. That means that you would work, escort people in and do all the things, that little things that people might want, need in the audience and whatever the uh, person, the host of that show would want done. So you're kind of like, like a production assistant? Something like that, but that, nothing doing in the production. You have to wear special clothing, an outfit, like the pages that they have for the Congress. You know, you run errands for them and do all those kind of things. You go get them coffee or water or what have you. Okay. That's it. So you're like a staffer kind of right. thing? Right, staff yeah. thing. Okay. That's what he did. And a lady by the name of Joseph Carey, and he started to do a kids' show in WQED in Pittsburgh. That was his first show, the two of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been working with that show, I mean, ever since he started that. So he was and, a nice guy. Oh, my gosh. He's a nice guy. What kind of practical jokes did he play? Well, there's one that he did to, do you know the uh, actor Michael Keaton? Yeah. You Batman. Know, huh? Batman. Yeah. You know, he used to be the floor manager for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Did he really? His name, his real name is Michael Douglas. He had to change it when he went to Hollywood because of the existing Michael Douglas. No way. Wait, did right. he name himself after, like, Buster Keaton? I guess so. <laughs> and, uh... So, wait, okay, he was a... So, Michael yeah, Keaton was a floor manager. Okay, Michael and a guy by the name of Nick Tallow. They were floor managers and people on the floor for the Fred Rogers show. And uh, Nick Tello was a part, at one time had been a part of a group called Huff Puff and stuff. <laughs> then they had another group of kids of uh, wait, 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 the kids show? H.R. Puff yeah. and stuff? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. And also they had another show that they developed themselves called The Flying Zucchinis. Michael Keaton, all the people who worked on the floor stages were the flying zucchini, zucchinis. They did all kind of crazy things, like uh, diving off a diving board into a grape or something like that. And they were always doing crazy little things. And Fred always had his camera on the set. He would be snapping pictures of things. And uh, Nick and Michael said, there's no film in that camera because they never saw anything that he shot. And uh, so one day, they decided that they were going to prove to everybody there was nothing in that camera. Fred is not taking any pictures. So Michael took the camera, and Nick mooned the camera, and Michael shot it and put the camera back and never said anything about it. Six months went by, and nobody never said anything about it. They never saw it or anything. And Nick was walking around, see, I told you there's nothing in that camera. Fred didn't even see that picture. So at Christmas time, Fred gives gifts and uh, bonuses to the staff and the people. 
and Christmas time, he had to nick this tube, and he could not figure out what it was, and he opened it up and pulled it out, and there was a picture of his ass. <laughs> So, did he did he get a Christmas bonus too? Oh yeah, okay, he got the Christmas bonus. But he wanted to know how do they know? <laughs> but probably he knew because only Fred, only Nicholas, and somebody would do something like that. Right. And probably Fred had probably heard him talk about there's no film in a camera, so that's why he might have known exactly who it was. Wow. Right. <laughs> And a lot of crazy things that practical jokes and things he had pulled on people he would do. And he would always tell you something a nice day. Have a nice day with a big smile. And there is um another kid, another student from here who was taking my class and he was hadn't done his project. This is the mixing techniques class. And he was near the end of this. We were on the quarterly system. And I said, you're going to fail. And he says, well, because he hadn't done anything. Everybody else had their thing. It was possibly two weeks before the end of the quarter. He called Fred and told called the station in Pittsburgh and got an interview with Fred. He told them that they were honoring me here and he needed an interview of somebody saying something nice about me and like him. So he went and got it went and got an interview from Mr. Rogers and they called it Mr. Butler's neighborhood and all the characters Fred characters that are on the show that he played like King Friday and yeah, King Friday and all of those. Well, my favorite character was X the Owl. Mm-hmm. And so Fred and X the Owl made a statements to me about honoring me and talking about it. And I will let you hear that CD one day. Please, yeah, I'd love to. This is Butler's Neighborhood. Did you give the student an A? Huh? Did you give the student an A? Oh, he had to <laughs> because he had did that stuff. He and his girlfriend went up there and got that for Fred. And they, I said, I don't know. I didn't think Fred would ever do that. And he did it. That's amazing. He did some things. And, oh, there were quite a few things that he had done and I had seen and we talked about and we did. In fact, um, him and Francois, Francois Clemens, they would always pull a proko, have a practical joke on me sometimes, and sometimes they would catch me. I've had a, a unusual and a very colorful, fun-feeling life. And you've and been, how long have you been working at OU? This is my 30th year. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. So you've been here since I was born. That's right. amazing. And like a lot of people, it's amazing that they say, you know, when I tell them about Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, oh, yes, even their parents. Oh, I remember seeing you <laughs> on the show because I appeared two or th- I was on two or three other shows that I appeared as myself. 
and uh, I won't tell you who where they are. Okay, fine. It's, it was over over seven hundred and fifty shows. Man, the Fred Rogers. I, I looked you up on IMDb. Uh huh. And uh, it says that you worked on a film with George Romero. Yeah. Night Riders. What did you do? I was a sound person. Did you record sound? Did you yeah. do mixing? You see where I look. Mm-hmm. Did you get any time with George to like oh, yes. talk to him? What was he like? In fact, his first movie he ever did, Dawn of the Dead, I mean, was or Night of the Living yeah, Dead, yeah. they used my recorder, one of my recorders, to record sound on that because I couldn't do it. Really? Right. Uh, guys who did that were Gary Striner and Russ Striner. They were the first of the dawn of the, whatever it is, the night of the living dead. So you just lent them your recorder? Mm-hmm. What it, I what? had two of them. <laughs> so, see, at that particular time, I went to the factory where the inaugurals were made. My wife worked for the airlines. So I could go anywhere in the world I wanted to at any time at no cost, and I would always go to the factory and watch my machines being built. So did did you get a lot of samples, like free samples of equipment to test out? No, just some. In fact, it got to the point, because I would modify some of the recorders to do what I wanted them to do for myself. And when I got would go to the factory, Koldelski would tell them, lock the doors, Cover up whatever you're working on. Search him when he leaves. <laughs> in uh, 1980, I don't know whether it was 86 or 87, at the AES show in Hamburg, I delivered a paper on microphone selections. And that was a year he had developed another miniature recorder that uh, you couldn't detect because it would use an optical type of recording. And it was a little recorder, and he was going to introduce it to the AES show that year that I was there. And he couldn't make it because he had the flu. And he sent his number one technician was there to deliver it, and uh, he showed it to me. And he said, you know what he said when he built this? He says, Butler will enjoy this one. And he said, when he came to the show, he says, whatever you do, don't tell him what I call this recorder. Because if he does, he'll want me to give him one. And I can show you the, in, the, in his catalog. What did he call it? JBR. Are you serious? <laughs> so, wow, that's great. Right. And then you got to use it. Did you get one? Did he give you one? Didn't he give you? Oh, that's not fair. No. So you didn't do a whole lot of um, like feature film recording then. Who, me? Yeah, you. Yeah, I've done uh, for George Romero. I did a couple others. I got three films that never got out of the laboratories. The companies went bankrupt. Really? Yeah, feature one. And uh, there's one called 101. Highway 101 was motorcycle something simple, similar to Easy Rider. Uh, gee, I've forgotten what the other two numbers was that I've done down in Virginia. 
and one in uh, one in L.A., <coughs> one in uh, New York. Uh, one of the exploitation films, black expo- uh, exploitation films that never got out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done quite a few things. Quite a few things. Yeah. Yeah. I've done uh, a lot of commercials. Uh, some of the DPs that I have worked with. Uh, let's see. He's dead. Haskell Wexler is dead. You worked with Haskell Wexler? Oh, yeah. Did commercials with him. Miller Beer and... What else? A couple of Miller Beer commercials with him. Conrad Hall. Nice. Joe Pitka. Thelmo. Zeswin. The Deer Hunter. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I worked on that f- production for the editor, Peter Zinger, who edited The Deer Hunter. All of his editing equipment, I had had to keep it operating. Wherever it went, I went. <coughs> and they were in Mingo Junction, Cleveland, State of Washington, Cambodia. <coughs> and everywhere it went, I went. So you were traveling Peter, with the production yeah. of The Deer Hunter? Oh, yeah, I had to. Peter Zena's uh, editing tables that were something similar to the uh, steambacks, but these were Kim's. <coughs> they were all electronic. And I had been sent by the uh, Society of Motion Pictures, Television Engineers, I was one of the six people that they sent to Germany to the place where the steam bags were made and as a fellow for a year to learn on how to make them and how to main how them how to maintain and operate those machines. And the company split and there was one called Kim, which made everything electronically versus the belts and the things that were in the steam bag. They were two companies right together, and they one split and went one way, and Kim went across the street, and Steamback was still in the same place. So I had to go to both schools <coughs> for a year in Germany to learn them, and I was one of the official repair, repairmen for the whole USA. Peter Weibel, myself, and another guy, I'm trying to remember his name. We were the first three ones that could would be experts on the Kims because we knew how they were put together and they were electronic and what happened, they were having a lot of troubles with them because they were all designed to work on 220 DC voltage. And they brought them to this country and they had not worked it out to for them to work on 110 and they had an awful lot of problems with the electronics and uh, for dissipating some of the heat from some of the heat sinks we had to get something from NASA to uh, tell us on what to use to dissipate the heat like something ceramic I see and it was so funny because I asked a friend that I knew at NASA to 
what did they use on the front of the spaceships when they returned them back to the earth so that they wouldn't burn up to dissipate the heat and he says you want to know I says yeah he says okay I'll send it to you and at WQED one day a truck backed up and says hey we got a package we got a pack something here on this truck a tractor trailer for Butler from NASA we're to deliver it is he here so he can sign for it and they called me and I went down and signed for it and they unloaded they had five flats with five different boxes of stuff on there and every one of them was a box of things that you could use to dissipate the heat and the most simple one they could have told me this on the telephone with ceramics and so what I did is I saw that's what they use those tiles on that the ceramics so I went over to Carnegie Mellon see WQED was a on the campus of of Carnegie Mellon, and we also had an MFA program that Carnegie Mellon utilized for film and what have you. And we were all adjunct faculty to the Carnegie Mellon to teach sound and film to those guys that got an MFA. And so I went over to the arts department and I showed the uh, this girl what I wanted to be made to put the under the transistors out of ceramic to dissipate the heat. And she says, oh, we can do that. You can have it tomorrow. So she gave me, she made 10 of them. And she gave it to me and I put it on the amplifiers that were in the chems and no more problems. <laughs> <laughs> and it cost roughly about 10 cents a piece oh, to that's make. That's not bad at all. Yeah. It's pretty cheap, actually. So that's why uh, I guess uh, I got to work with Peter Zener. You know, there's another famous editor I have worked with, and uh, she does all of Martin Scorsese's films. Thelma? Yeah. You worked with Thelma? Oh, yeah. How did you get to work with her? Thelma used to do uh, National Geographic editing. No way. Yeah. Can you get her to visit OU so I, I, I can meet was, her? I tried to get her to come one year, but uh, she was doing, uh, got called to do a film, Scortese. She couldn't come. She couldn't come. But uh, two students I have sent to see her, have, she has helped them get jobs as assistant editors in New York. I can show you the emails that uh, she sent to me. You, we have to. I, I would love to meet. <laughs> I would love to meet her. That would be amazing. All right. My and, goodness. Uh, you know the producer of Woodstock, mm -hmm. Dale Bell. Yeah, you're telling me he's the, the National Geographic guy. Right. He, Thelma, myself, we all work together. See, he. But, she, but she didn't have a problem with editing, and you did. So you went to sound and she did editing, right? She, yeah. Well, see, what happened, she, because she edited on a steam back. And uh, not on a steam back, on the chem. Okay. And at WQED, they had five of them. And uh, I was the only person that knew how to make them work, or either they had to, they had problems with it, they had to wait a day or so to get a guy, Peter, to come from L.A. or the guy out of New York. But they said, 
brother can do it. He can fix it. So that's how I got to know Thelma to work with her. Oh, man. And then... Uh, she has a lot of Academy Awards. Huh? She has quite a few Academy oh, Awards. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was one film that she and her husband was doing, and uh, I was going to do sound for it. And they got blown off the mountain in the Himalayas. And uh, I couldn't go. And then they decided to, they found the mountain in Ireland that could be utilized, the same face for mountain climbing. What they were going to do is a, a new technique in retrieving everything that you put into the mountain when you do climbing. And this is what they were going to do. And they found this mountain in Ireland that could do the same thing. The rocks looked just the same and everything because they took photographs of it and they made a comparison. You couldn't tell the difference. And we went to crew and everything and everybody, Thelma and her husband and the crew. I've forgotten who was uh, DP in for that. Get to Ireland the day before we shoot, shoot the worst storm in the history of Ireland. <laughs> so they just abandoned. They never finished the show. That's too bad. Yeah. Man. Well, John, I have to actually go do homework. Oh, you okay? And you were worrying about time for me. I I know. Well, now it's it's. Okay, but, but I'm so thank you so much for sitting down and doing this for me. I really appreciate okay. it. It's it's. I always love hearing your stories. There are some stories that I haven't told you, some things that I can tell you. Okay. If you want let's to do, do that it next again. time. Yeah, I want, let's do it again next semester. Okay. When I get a little bit more experience, I can ask you some, okay. some more questions. And I'll tell you some more things of, uh, for you to get uh, together to ask me so I can remember okay. what to tell you. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Thanks once again. You're quite welcome. Thanks for listening. That was John L. Butler. Feel free to subscribe, leave a review, and find me on Instagram at rkodinsund. We'll see you next time.